You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I will read through verse 17, although I'm going to really focus through verse 16, and then I think we'll focus on verse 17 for Christmas Eve this week on, on Thursday night here. Here's God's word. I, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then it says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray as we look into God's Word. Father, thank You for each of the the younger ones that are joining us for this part of the service. Lord, I'm so thankful they're here, and I pray that you'd guide their hearts to grasp at least in part of what we're saying and to hear your word and to value your holy word that we read. Lord, I just pray in the words that I will speak as we comment and we look on this text, would you guide the preacher today? to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim grace and mercy found in Him. And we just pray that You'll guide our time by Your Spirit to illuminate these words before us and this time to to work on our hearts. We would pray in Your name. Amen. I want to give a kind of a story. If you can picture yourself... Uh, taking a cruise by an ocean liner. I don't know how many of you have, have done that. I've been on a boat before. I've never been on a cruise ship. But let's, let's say that you're leaving from New York and you're crossing the ocean to England, just picking a scenario, heading to New York, got your tickets, you made your way to New York. Don't try to read all into what this story, but got tickets on your way to New York. You get on the cruise ship, ocean liner, whatever, and you set sail for England across the Atlantic Ocean. And when you get there, lo and behold, I meet you there somehow. Just play along with it. And I'm there, and your boat comes, and I ask you a rather odd question when you get off the boat, and I say to you, how did you get here? How did you arrive here in England? How did you get to this place? You're probably not going to say, well, the tickets got me here, or I drove my car to New York. That's what did it. You're you're probably going to say, and maybe you're thinking this, it's very simple, what got you there? It's the boat, right? The, the boat. If you don't have the boat, the Atlantic's really cold. I think any time of the year, you're not going to get very far. You could try to swim a little bit, and you won't make it. It's the ship. That's what got you there. In a similar way, 
and work with me. In a similar way, today's passage gives us the cruise ship, the, the boat, the instrumental cause, the foundation of our eternal salvation. And as we go through, I want you to try to discern what is that foundation as we think through this passage. We're in the book of 1 Timothy. As we've been studying, we've kind of been a couple places during this Christmas season Why answering that question, why did Jesus come? Lots of different answers we might give from Scripture. Why did Jesus come? And so today, one answer is found in this text, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving it the broad text, and you'll see it as we go along. Paul here, he's writing to his dear Timothy. His, he calls him his true child in the faith. And Timothy's at Ephesus, and he's facing some Some challenges there, challenges of doctrine, challenges of beliefs. And Paul writes to encourage Timothy in his work here, amongst other things. And in the the immediate context before where we're kind of setting up shop and where we're looking at, Paul says the law is good. It's in verse 8. He talks about the law being good, but also that the law is not a law for those who are just. That is, righteousness cannot be found by the law but the law is for the lawless and the disobedient. And, and Paul goes on to list all these sins. And one primary function of the law, which I think was pointed out as Mill went through Galatians, is that revealing of just how sinful and how disobedient man truly is. It reveals to us our sin. And so Paul says right before this section, 1 Timothy, the law is good, but it's good in that I think it exposes sin. And then Paul's just about to say, and I'm the foremost. I'm the, John Bunyan would say, chief of sinners. That's me. And so as we get into verse 12, we get a glimpse of Paul's story in this passage. His kind of personal testimony, as it were. So look at verse 12. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Paul's grateful for Jesus, the one who gave him strength. But it might seem here that Paul was strengthened by Jesus. You've got that because word in there if you're in ESV. Because of Paul's faithfulness. Christ strengthened him because of what Paul did, his faithfulness. He says, Jesus judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Let's think about that a little bit. The word for faithful here comes from the same root Paul's just used a similar word, and it's actually um, kind of multitude of times through here, faith that comes up. But faithful, verse 11, Paul uses, he's got the word entrusted. This gospel of which I've been entrusted. Same root word there. The NIV actually translates verse 12 as, he considered me trustworthy. So the question in this verse Should Jesus Christ have considered Paul trustworthy? Now, we're going to come to it more in just a second, but verse 13 answers no. No, he he shouldn't have. Paul was a blasphemer. He was persecutor, insolent opponent. Not exactly a trustworthy man to preach the gospel. Um, (laughs) Tried to think of some names. Put it in perspective. It's kind of like calling on on in Paul in this state as a blasphemer, persecutor, kind of like calling on Charles Darwin to come teach a class on biblical creationism. And we would go, who? 
Or, you know, I just picked an actor out of that. You know, Tom Cruise, great actor. But it's like us saying, hey, Tom, why don't you come and teach our next adult Bible Sunday school class here? And we would go, well, maybe we like his acting, but we're not so sure about that. I think that there's a flavor of this with Paul. And I think all this to say Paul's appointment to his ministry, to this ministry, was in fact an act of grace. If you want, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9. We're thinking about Paul and, and who he was and what he did. And one particular place here in Acts 9 just really gives us an idea of him. <clears throat> I'll just read in verse 1. I'll read a little ways here just so you hear the, the story. Think about this, this guy deemed trustworthy. <clears throat> Acts 9.1 says, But Saul, Paul, <clears throat> still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, <clears throat> men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Now we're familiar with that word. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise. There's that grace in the butt, right? But rise and enter the city you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I'll read a little bit further. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, what I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Can you hear Ananias? This guy? Really? That's... That's the one, and the Lord says, this is my chosen instrument. Chosen by grace, not merit. Didn't earn it. Jesus took a former blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, and appointed him to ministry because that's what the grace of Jesus does. Let's look a bit, little bit more as we get back to 1 Timothy in verse 13 then. Look at verse 13, and we come back to this 
though formally. So here's Paul saying, I'm in the service. He's given me strength. Even though, yours might say, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So here is that one, that former blasphemer, persecutor, receiving mercy. So how bad were these sins? Well, blasphemy alone was deserving of death. It was against God Himself. Remember Acts 9 that we just read, persecuting. I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's bad enough persecuting the saints. Jesus says, no, you're persecuting me. You think of sin, that's huge. Blaspheming, persecuting, um, insolent, the idea of being insolent there, the, the idea of being violent or overbearing or domineering in power. This is all of who Paul formerly was. George Knight, a commentator, calls him the Lord's chief vicious adversary. So Paul's sin was really and truly sinful. But then Paul has this phrase here, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And if you're reading along and you're thoughtful and you're coming to this part, maybe you, like me, have a question here and you say, hold on, Does, does this verse imply that this mercy came on the basis of Paul's ignorant unbelief. That that's maybe in some way did Paul somehow earn God's mercy because of unbelief? Did he earn this mercy? Now, the short answer is no, and we could move on to the next verse. Um, you know me and my mind. It's, I'm tend to not just leave things at no. Try to think them out. What is, what is going on here? So we know, no, mercy is not earned. That's not something you earn. Mercy is granted to people that don't earn it. And if we know anything of Paul, anything of all Scripture, can you ever see Paul saying, something earned something else? My works earned mercy or grace. And in fact, this section, if you take the section as a whole, it's all about the grace of Christ. So we can't, forget that as we think about this but i'll just admit to you this phrase for me perhaps for you you're blessed to understand it more clearly i've struggling with how does this he acted ignorantly how does this relate to mercy what about his past what does this mean what we can do in these situations is go from clear what is clear praise the lord there is a lot of clarity and that helps us understand maybe somewhat what's What's more unclear? Clearly here in this entire section and what's just right around this is Paul saying Christ's mercy, Christ's grace. That's what's on display. But as we study, we might question then ourselves and say, well, we get the what ifs. Well, what, what, what if, okay, Paul, he was ignorant and unbelieving. Well, what if I know better and I sin? Is there, is there grace for me? Is there mercy? I mean, I, I know, Paul didn't maybe know, no, but I know when I'm, I know God's law and I sin anyway. I have a few short thoughts on this. One is the admonition to not presume upon God's mercy 
I think that can be a takeaway here. Let me explain a little bit what I mean. That there's a fear that should lead us to not assume upon God's mercy. In other words, I'll sin this way because I know my God and I know He's merciful. And so I'll just sin a little because I know forgiveness is coming. That's presuming upon the Lord. And that's not, I don't think that's a place where mercy is found in that kind of attitude. I, I think it's got a flavor of a, of a high-handedness that Numbers 15 talks about or a defiance. Kind of a, I know, but I'm, I'm just going that way. So for those in a sin like that, there should be fear in us. Fear of the Holy One. But then what do we do with that fear? If, if we're fearful, well, praise God, we're fearing that, right? That's, that's always the, 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 the opposite. And as we look at that, because if you're fearing that and you're going, well, I don't know, and I don't know if I'm this, and I, don't, I hope not, and you've got, that's a fear of the Lord. And that's where mercy is found. That's what Mary says in her, um, when she's praising the Lord. She's just met with Elizabeth and, see, and she talks about mercy being found for those who fear the Lord. I don't think that's an earning mercy, but there's a state of fear. And that fear can lead us back to belief. Not belief in keeping the law. Okay, I'll do better this time. But fear leads us to believe in the one who has kept all the law. And so we cannot disconnect this as much as, and I'm just pulling away a bit, as much as we, hmm, I don't, how does this, all this work? What, what was Paul's thing going on before? Look at verse 14 then. We just can't disconnect from verse 14. Because Paul just right on the heels of this, I acted in ignorantly and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed, like superabundance, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So in the midst of great sin, Paul's great sin, and it was great sin, even though maybe he didn't know or ignorant, it's great sin. Grace abounds for Paul and for all who come to a knowledge of the truth. And how does this grace abound in this verse? The grace overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's called faith and love in Christ. So Paul's unbelief was replaced not with belief in and of itself or faith in my faith, or that just becomes another law, doesn't it? How deep is my faith? How big? All these sorts of things. Where's the object? It's a faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's where his faith was in. That God's abounding grace comes to sinners who look to Christ. Again, I admit, struggling to understand Paul's phrase here, uh, for me, it's a bit like grabbing jello, right? As soon as you grab it, it's kinda, it's, it, it, it goes a little bit like that. And as you think about that phrase, you know, ignorant and am I and, and do I believe enough or what if I knowingly do this, all these sorts of things, it, it's a tailspin into some horrifying thoughts, right? Grace and mercy, they're, they're conditional and it's, it's, it's based on me. Or receiving God's grace and mercy rests on, on me. And Paul would never, never want that thought. But if this passage causes us to ponder, in a sense, how we sin, and, and again, that's easy for us who have known the grace of God for so long, we can just 
kind of presume upon that grace. I'll just sin and His grace will cover it. And it's just okay. And we don't have that fear of, whoa, no, no, I just disobeyed God who is holy and righteous and perfect. And that fear then leads us somewhere. Again, without that fear, without you know, just kind of moseying along, God's grace will cover it. I'm just okay. Th- that should be a scary place to be. But any worries of committing a sin so heinous, they, they fade once again. Praise the Lord as we fix our eyes on Him, on Jesus. That's what the passage takes us to. So we should be scared in our own power to not sin. That should scare us, but we should We should rest in God's abounding grace. So then look at verse 15. Now we're finally here. That verse, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Out of His purposes, we've looked at coming to to bring the kingdom near, to do the will of the Father. Last week, to testify to the truth. And yet here's also the mission of Christ to save sinners. All of this list, and and you can go on and hope maybe you made a list of that, that sheet we put in the bulletin weeks ago of why did Jesus come? And you could add to this list. I don't think these are all just kind of They're just separate as if there's another idea and another idea here, that sort of thing. They're more, I liken them to, you know, your your crockpots of soup. That there's there's all these ingredients of grace. There's God's kingdom through Christ. There's there's Jesus following the will of the Father, being obedient to the the point of shedding His blood on a cross. There's the truth that Jesus brings. There's here, He's coming to save sinners and these ingredients... Lift an aroma of God's glory. To that King be praised for what He's doing, what He came to do. We should bow and kneel before the King. And this King and this One, this Jesus came to save sinners of whom Paul says He's the foremost. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, did He? That's what He says. He didn't come for those who don't need a doctor. He came for the sick and dying. Are you sick and dying? That's what He came for. Sick of sin, dying in sin, that's who He came for. Lost in sin, He came to find you. He came, says Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Paul's the foremost of sinners. That's who Jesus came to save, sinners. Here, Paul acknowledges his true condition. Uh, I quoted John Bunyan. I think John Bunyan wrote the book. I have not read it yet. Abounding, um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I think that, that name fits with Paul. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says of those like Paul and hopefully like you that say, I'm not above other sinners. I'm actually the worst sinner here. Here's what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says this, Godly men never think or speak lightly of their sins. When they know that they are forgiven, they repent of their iniquities even more heartily than before. They never infer 
from the freeness of grace, the lightness of sin, but quite the contrary. And you find it as one trait in the character of every true penitent that he is rather inclined to blacken himself than to whitewash his transgressions. You hear that? If you're going, I'm foremost of sin, I'm seeing more sin than I've ever seen before, praise the Lord because God's doing a work in you to see all this and what He saved you from for His glory. That's what Paul's pointing out to himself here. So what about you and your heart? Is there a growing conviction that unless, Lord, unless you are merciful, I am cast off forever from you? Look lastly at verse 16 in this passage then. Another reason of mercy. Here's Paul again, verse 16. But I received mercy. Or I was shown mercy, I received it. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, that chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So God's mercy on Paul again comes with another reason here. And by Paul's example, many would believe and have eternal life. And the example is the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners. Did you hear the answer to my original question? What's the foundation through this? What's the foundation of our eternal salvation? What's the boat, if it were? What's the cruise ship by which we're eternally saved? It's only and ever only the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the ship. To you saints, temptations will abound for us to put our trust in somehow living rightly before God. And are we? Yes, we're created in Christ to do good works. And we can begin to put our trust in what we do somehow, some way. Follow His laws. Yet, Yes, good laws they are. But the law comes and as we read it, we see the immensity, if we take it seriously, just how far off we are. And the law brings us to a knowledge of sin. Great sin, but guess what? The same writer of 1 Timothy writes in Romans 5, 20, where sin increased, you finish it, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If God's grace has abounded in your life to open your eyes, to see your sinfulness and the Savior Jesus Christ, then rejoice for you are a new creation. And He who began this work is going to be faithful to complete it. Lastly, I want to read again from Spurgeon and finish reading these encouraging words from him. As you think about your sin and distance from a holy God made sure by the grace of Christ in your life, looking to Him. Here's what Spurgeon, he asks a bunch of questions. I'll just ask him, I'll ask his. 
He says, do you think the Lord ever converts a man with a view of showing him the light that he may go back again into the thick darkness forever? Does he drop a spark of heavenly light into our souls that it may go out never to be rekindled? No. Does he come and teach us to eat heavenly bread and drink the water of life and then leave us to starvation or die of thirst? Does he make us members of Christ's body and then allow us to rot and decay? Has he brought us thus far to put us to shame? Has he given me a heart that cries after him and pines for him? Has he given me a sighing after perfection, an inward hunger after everything that's holy and true? And does he mean, after all, to desert me? It cannot be. His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. That gracious conversion I have in review confirms His good pleasure to help me quite through. Let's pray together. Lord, as the song says, Lord, I need You. Every hour, I need You. Were it not for your interceding blood and your life on our behalf, we are lost, 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 lost in sin. Were it not for your abundant sovereign grace, we would be lost. Were it not for your voice calling us, we would be lost. Were it up to us, Lord, we would be lost. And the ship has come called Christ Jesus. What a beautiful boat and rock it is. And way better than the little boat we're trying to live in. Help us to trust you, Lord. May we boast in nothing of ourselves, of our salvation, but boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's your salvation for your glory. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.